You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Jared Diamond. This program originally aired in 2013. This is Word of Mouth from New Hampshire Public Radio. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today, NHPR and the Music Hall present Writers on a New England Stage with Jared Diamond. Diamond won the Pulitzer Prize for Guns, Germs, and Steel, his book which sought to explain why the cultures of Europe and Asia were able to conquer and dominate other cultures throughout history. His book, The World Until Yesterday, continues to focus not on the defining moments or great men of the historical record, but the environmental and biological constraints that steer the fates of nations and people. Drawing from decades of research, Diamond makes the points that humans have lived in traditional foraging societies for far longer than in the state and social structures of modern humans. They have, in effect, conducted a series of experiments on how to solve essential human problems, from child-rearing to resolving conflict. He argues that while traditional practices of violence and infanticide should not be romanticized, small-scale societies may have things to teach today's fast-moving humans. Diamond took the stage at the Music Hall to talk about those lessons, but began with his first natural habitat, New England. It's a great pleasure for me to be back in New Hampshire. I was born and grew up in Boston, and that meant that I spent my summers on Lake Winnipesaukee and at Jaffray. I imprinted on the New Hampshire pine forests with their Blackburnian warblers. When I think of what is the ideal place in the world to be, after New Guinea, of course, it's <laughs> the New Hampshire pine forest. You lucky people are here all the time. I get to be here only occasionally. To give me an idea how many of you here this evening may find what I'm about to tell you of practical interest, I'm going to ask you to raise your hands in either of two batches. First, could you raise your hand, those of you who either are over age 65 or who hope to live past age 65 <laughs> or who have a parent or grandparent who is or did live past 65? Could you raise your hands, please? OK, all of you who just raised your hand will find my talk this evening of practical interest. Now, let me ask you to raise your hand if you are under 65, have no intention of reaching 65, and have no parent or grandparent who passed 65. Could you raise your hand? An underwhelming response, but the, those of you in that category will not find what I say this evening to be of personal relevance, but you will nevertheless find it fascinating. <laughs> I'm going to talk to you this evening about growing older in traditional societies. This subject constitutes just one chapter of my latest book, which compares traditional small tribal societies with our big modern societies with respect to many aspects of society, such as the status of older people, bringing up children, health, dealing with danger, settling disputes, war, religion, and speaking more than one language. Tribal societies constituted all human societies for most of human history. They are far more diverse than are our modern big societies. All big societies that have governments and where most people are strangers to each other, as you are to me this evening are similar to each other and they're different from tribal societies in many basic ways, regardless of whether the big societies are American, German, Chinese, or Israeli. Tribes constitute thousands of different natural experiments in how to run a human society. They are experiments from which we ourselves may be able to learn. We shouldn't scorn tribal societies as primitive and miserable, but also they shouldn't be romanticized as always happy and peaceful. When we learn of tribal practices, some of them will horrify us. But there are other tribal practices that when we hear about them, we may admire and envy them and wonder whether we could adopt those practices ourselves. To get some perspective on how we treat our elderly people in the United States or in modern Western societies in general, let me tell you the opinion of a friend of mine from the Fiji Islands in the Pacific Ocean who had visited the US. There were some things that my Fiji friend admired about the US, other things that he disliked, but what he most loathed about the US was 
our treatment of older people. He almost shouted at me indignantly, you Americans throw away your older people. By that, he meant that most old people in the US end up living separately from their children and separately from most of their friends of their earlier years. And often they live in separate retirement homes for the elderly. Whereas in Fiji and other traditional societies, older people instead live out their lives among their children, their other relatives, and their lifelong friends. Nevertheless, the treatment of the elderly varies enormously among traditional societies, from much worse to much better than in our modern societies. At the worst extreme, many traditional societies get rid of their elderly in one of five increasingly direct ways, either not feeding them until they die, or abandoning them when the group moves, or encouraging their older people to commit suicide, or killing their older people with their own cooperation, or most directly, killing older people without their consent or cooperation. In what tribal societies do children abandon or kill their parents? It happens mainly under two sets of conditions. One condition is in nomadic, hunter-gatherer societies that often shift camp and that are physically incapable of transporting old people who can't walk when the able-bodied young people already have to carry their young children and their physical possessions. The other condition for abandoning or killing old people is in societies living in marginal or fluctuating environments, such as the Arctic or deserts, where there are periodic food shortages, and occasionally there just isn't enough food to keep everyone alive. Whatever food is available has to be reserved for able-bodied people still capable of contributing to the tribe's survival, and for children who grow up to be the tribe's future adults. To us modern American, it sounds horrible to think of abandoning or killing your own sick spouse or elderly parent. But what else could those societies do? They face a cruel choice or lack of choice. Their old people already had to do it to their own parents, and the old people know what is now is going to happen to them. At the opposite extreme in treatment of the elderly, the happy extreme, are the New Guinea farming societies where I've been doing my field work for the last 60 years, and the village society, my Fijian friend, and many other sedentary traditional societies around the world. In those societies, older people are cared for, they are fed, they remain valuable, and they continue to live in the same hut or else in a nearby hut near their children, relatives, and lifelong friends. There are two main sets of reasons for this variation among societies in their treatment of old people. The variation depends especially on the usefulness of older people and on the society's values. First, as regards usefulness, older people continue to perform useful services in traditional societies and also in modern societies. One use of older people traditionally is that often they're still effective at producing food. Another usefulness is that older people can babysit their grandchildren, thereby freeing up their own children, the parents of those grandchildren, to go hunting and gathering food for the grandchildren. Still another traditional use of older people is in making tools, weapons, baskets, and textiles. In fact, they're usually the people who are best at it. Older people usually are the leaders of traditional societies and the people most knowledgeable about medicine, religion, politics, songs, and dances. That's the origin of our expression, tribal elders. And to some extent, that's still true today. While I don't know the average age of US governors on assuming office, the average age of American presidents on assuming the presidency is 54 years. Finally, older people in traditional societies have one more huge significance that would never occur to us in our modern literate societies, where our sources of information are books and the internet. In contrast, in traditional societies without writing, older people are indispensable as the repositories of information. It's their knowledge that spells the difference between survival and death for their whole society in a time of crisis caused by rare events of which only the oldest people have had experience. The other set of 
reasons for variation in treatment of the elderly is the society's cultural values, which vary somewhat independently of the usefulness of the elderly. For example, among large societies that have had centralized government for thousands of years, there's particular emphasis on respect for the elderly in East Asia, associated with the philosophy of Confucius and his doctrine of filial piety, which means obedience, respect, and support for elderly parents. Cultural values that emphasize respect for older people, such as filial piety, contrast with the low status of the elderly here in the United States. Older Americans are at a disadvantage in getting jobs. For example, a sociologist at Boston University carried out the experiment of submitting dozens of job applications in response to ads by prospective employers. All of the applications gave fictitious names of women, and all of the applications were identical, except that half of the applications gave the woman's age as 25 to 40, while the other half of the applications gave the woman's age as 45 to 60. The result of the experiment was that employers were twice as likely to call a woman age 25 to 40 for a job interview as a woman age 45 to 60. Another example of the low status of the elderly in the US is an explicit policy in our hospitals called age-based allocation of healthcare resources. That expression, age-based allocation of healthcare resources, it's a cruel euphemism. It means that if hospital resources are limited, for example, if only a certain number of hospital beds are available, or if only one donor heart becomes available for transplant, or if a surgeon has time to operate only on a certain number of patients, American hospitals have an explicit policy of giving preference to younger patients because they have more years of life ahead of them, even though the younger patients have fewer years of valuable life experience behind them. There are several reasons for this low status of the elderly in the United States. One is our Protestant work ethic, which places high value on work, so older people who are no longer working aren't respected. Another reason is our American emphasis on the virtues of self-reliance and independence, so we instinctively scorn older people who are no longer self-reliant and independent. Still a third reason is our American cult of youth, which shows up even in our advertisements, ads for Coca-Cola and beer, always depict smiling young people, the Pepsi generation. Even though old people as well as young people buy Coca-Cola and Pepsi and beer. Just think, what's the last time that you saw a Coca-Cola or beer ad depicting smiling people 75 or 80 years old? <laughs> Never. Instead, the only American ads featuring white-haired old people are ads for retirement homes and pension planning. Well. What has changed in the status of the elderly today compared to their status in traditional societies? There have been a few changes for the better and more changes for the worse. Big changes for the better include the facts that today we enjoy much longer lives, much better health in our old age, and much better recreational opportunities. Another change for the better in the lives of the elderly is that we now have specialized retirement facilities and programs to take care of old people. But changes for the worse in the situation of the elderly begin with a cruel reality that we now have far more old people and far fewer young people than at any time in the past. That means that all of those old people are more of a burden on the few young people, and that each old person has less individual value since there are so many old people. Yet another change for the worse in the status of the elderly is formal retirement from the workforce, carrying with it a loss of work friendships and a loss of the self-esteem associated with work. Perhaps the biggest of all the changes for the worse in the status of our elderly is that they are objectively less useful than in traditional societies. Widespread literacy means that they're no longer useful as repositories of knowledge. When you want some information, you look it up in a book or you Google it instead of finding some old person to ask. And then the slow pace of technological change in traditional societies means that what someone learns there as a child is still useful when that person is old. But the rapid pace of technological change today means that what we learn as children is no longer useful 60 years later. 
And conversely, we older people aren't fluent in the technology essential to surviving in modern society. For example, as a 15-year-old high school student, I was considered outstandingly good at multiplying numbers because I had memorized the multiplication tables and I know how to use logarithms and I'm quick at manipulating a slide rule. Today, though, skill at multiplication tables and logarithms and slide rules has become utterly useless because any idiot today can multiply eight-digit numbers accurately and instantly with a pocket calculator. Conversely, I, at age 75, am incompetent at skills essential for everyday life. My family's first television set that we acquired in 1948 when I was growing up in Boston had only three knobs that I quickly mastered. There was an on-off switch, there was a volume knob, and there was a channel selector. Today, just to watch a television program on the television set in our living room in my own house, I have to operate a 41-button TV remote that defeats me and I still find utterly confusing. To watch television, I have to telephone my 25-year-old sons and get them to talk me through it while I try to push those wretched 41 buttons. What can we do to improve the lives of the elderly in the US and to make better use of their value? That's a huge problem. In my remaining few minutes today, I can offer you just a few suggestions. One value of old people is that they are increasingly useful for offering high-quality child care as more and more young women enter the workforce compared to the usual alternatives of paid babysitters and daycare centers, grandparents, if they wish to do so, offer superior, motivated, experienced child care. They've already gained experience from raising their own children. They usually love their grandchildren and are eager to be permitted to spend time with their grandchildren. Unlike other caregivers, grandparents are unlikely to quit their job because they found another job with higher pay or with more social security and medical benefits. <laughs> a second value of older people is paradoxically related to their loss of value as the result of changing world conditions and technology. At the same time, older people have gained in value today precisely because of their unique experience of former conditions that have now become rare because of rapid change, but that could come back. For example, only Americans now in their 70s or older today can remember the experience of living through a Great Depression, the experience of living through a world war, and the experience of living through food and gas rationing. Most of our current voters and leaders and politicians have no personal experience of any of those things, but millions of older Americans do. Unfortunately, all of those terrible situations could come back. And even if they don't come back, we have to be able to plan for them on the basis of the experience of what they were like. Older people and voters and politicians have that experience. Younger people and politicians and voters don't have that experience. The remaining value of older people that I'll mention involves recognizing that while there are many things that older people can no longer do, there are other things that they can do much better than younger people. A challenge for our society is to make use of those things that older people are better at doing. Some abilities, of course, decrease with age. Those abilities decreasing with age include abilities at tasks requiring physical strength and stamina, ambition, and the power of novel reasoning in a narrowly circumscribed situation, such as figuring out the structure of DNA best left to scientists under the age of 30. Conversely, valuable attributes that increase with age include experience, understanding of people and human relationships, ability to help other people without your own ego getting in the way, and interdisciplinary thinking about large databases, such as biogeography and comparative history, best left to scholars over the age of 60 or preferably over 75. <laughs> Hence, older people are better than younger people at supervising, governing, administering, advising, strategizing, teaching, and synthesizing. I've seen this value of older people with so many of my friends in their 60s, 70s, 80s, and even 90s, friends who are still active as farmers, lawyers, and surgeons. In short, many traditional societies make better use of their elderly and give their elderly more satisfying lives than we do in modern big societies. Paradoxically, nowadays, when we have more elderly people than ever before, 
living healthier lives and with better medical care than ever before, old age is in some respects more miserable than ever before. The lives of the elderly are widely recognized as constituting a disaster area of modern American society. We can surely do better by learning from the lives of the elderly in traditional society. Of course, I'm not advocating that we all give up agriculture and metal tools, return to a hunter-gatherer lifestyle, live in small tribes, and resume making war against neighboring tribes. But there are also things to be admired about people in traditional societies and perhaps to be learned from them. Their lives in traditional societies are usually socially much richer than our lives, although materially poorer. Their children in traditional societies are usually more self-confident, more independent, more socially skilled, more precocious than are our micromanaged children. They, in traditional societies, almost never die of diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure, stroke, and the other non-communicable diseases that will be the causes of death of most of us here in this room today. That's not just because they, in traditional societies, don't live long enough to get diabetes and those other diseases. Even when compared at the same age, people living traditional lifestyles are far less likely to get diabetes and heart disease and those other non-communicable diseases than are Americans of that age. Features of modern lifestyle predispose us to those diseases and features of the traditional lifestyle protect us against them. Other chapters in my book, besides the chapter on aging, discuss other areas where we can learn from traditional societies. For example, dispute resolution in traditional societies, in contrast with the American civil and criminal court system. Traditional dispute resolution aims at emotional reconciliation. It's not concerned with establishing right and wrong. Whereas the American court system is concerned about right and wrong, it doesn't care about emotional reconciliation. And the result for any of you who've been involved in a civil or criminal case is, as you know, misery that usually is lifelong for a divorcing couple or for brothers and sisters and parents and children locked in an inheritance dispute. The state cares about what's right and doesn't care whether those people ever end up speaking to each other. Unlike traditional dispute resolution, which wants to aims at restoring relationships. Child rearing plays out differently in traditional and modern societies. And there, there are some big surprises from some of which my wife and I learned in bringing up our own kids. One is that when you carry your infants, in traditional societies, infants, they're not transported horizontally in a baby carriage. They're not transported vertically facing backwards in a pouch. They're always transported vertically so they have the same field of view as the person carrying them. And that develops their neuromotor skills and a sense of being in control of the world. In traditional societies, parents or caretakers respond quickly, within 10 seconds, often within three seconds, to a baby's crying. There's none of this nonsense about letting a baby cry itself to sleep and develop self-control and also develop a lack of security. Dangers. People in traditional societies have a clear perspective of dangers in contrast to us Americans who just don't think clearly about danger. We obsess about the wrong dangers like terrorists and plane crashes. We don't focus on the real dangers to us and we ignore the dangers of things that we do every day and each time you do them, the risk is low, but if you do them often enough, it'll catch up with you. For example, I already did the most dangerous thing that I'm gonna to do today. I took a shower. All you have to do is read the obituary pages of the newspaper and you'll see that a common cause of crippling or death in old people is slipping in the shower or on the sidewalk or on the stairs. Um, I hope to live at least 15 more years, which means that hopefully, I'll have 5,475 more showers ahead of me. And if my risk of slipping is one in a thousand, that means I'm gonna kill myself five times before I live out my lifestyle. I have to be much more careful in the shower, and so do all of you, particularly those of you who are older. Religion has changed functions between traditional societies and modern times. And that's relevant to trying to figure out what is going to be the likely future of religion during this century. And multilingualism, whose value in the United States is debated. There are lots of Americans who think that children should not be brought up speaking a second language. Multilingualism is routine in traditional societies. I've never met a New Guinean who spoke fewer than three languages. Most of them speak at least five, and some of them speak up to 15 languages. One of the biggest surprises in the work of my book was that in the last five years, it's turned out that the best protection we know against the symptoms of the terrifying disability of old age, Alzheimer's disease, and the other dimensions of old age, 
for which people attempt to play bridge or pseudo-coup in the absence of evidence that it really helps, and there's no pill that helps. The best protection against the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease we've learned in the past five years is to be bilingual or multilingual. If you're bilingual, that gives you, on the average, five years of protection against Alzheimer's. And if you are multilingual, maybe you'll get more than five years of protection. So those are just some examples of what we can learn from traditional societies. I hope that you will find it as fascinating to read in my book about traditional societies as I found it to live in them. Thank you. Well, Professor Diamond, what a pleasure to have you here with us tonight. Um, back in sort of your old stomping grounds, I'm aware that you're a Red Sox fan, so you've already cleared it? I'm an intelligent person, of course I'm a Red Sox fan. <laughs> <laughs> well, so what you've just, you've outlined, uh, speaking about the elderly, but then top line, some of the various different experiments, in effect, that have been performed by traditional societies that we, about essential questions of human living that we can learn from kind of created this database, and I'd love to dig into that database. One of the things you reminded me of, however, when you were speaking about the elderly, there are ways that the elderly have ensured their survival and that they get food and that they get young women by creating these food taboos and sex taboos. I'd love you to tell us a little about those. Sure. In traditional societies, there are food taboos. Um, which sometimes serve the interests of the elderly. So, for example, among an Aboriginal Australian tribe, the taboos say that young women should not eat kangaroo or bandicoot tail because it will make their milk dry up, and that young men should not eat emu fat because it will cause a bump to appear on their head, um, and et cetera, et cetera, but that it's allegedly perfectly safe for old people to eat these foods. <laughs> Well, so there are a lot of rules of behavior. There are things that are permitted. There are things that are not permitted in a lot of traditional societies. But there also is a great deal of latitude and permissiveness in some societies when it comes to raising their children, at least. In fact, the Wall Street Journal had a review of uh, Jared Diamond's book. The headline was, Let Your Kids Play With Matches, which wasn't exactly your message. But there is a photograph in your book of a young, I think it's Pume Indian child, playing with a long knife. You know, this is a toddler. It is true that in traditional societies, particularly in hunter-gatherer societies and small-scale farming societies without livestock, kids, are, babies, are considered autonomous beings who should make their own decisions, and they're given far more latitude than we would give our own kids, in some cases latitude that would horrify us. When I first went to the New Guinea Highlands, I noticed that most people had small fire scars on their arms, and I assumed that they had gotten it being incautious as an adult, but no, most of them acquired these fire scars as babies playing too close to fires. And the attitude of the parents is, well, the baby has got to make its own decisions and learn for itself. That's going further than we would go, but when my wife and I were bringing up our own children, yes, we did not let them play with sharp <laughs> knives and matches, but my son Max at age three decided that he wanted a pet snake. Now, my wife and I had no relationship to snakes, but Max says he wants a snake. We're not going to give him a poisonous snake or an anaconda, but let him have a snake. And he gradually built up until he had 147 pet snakes and frogs and lizards and salamanders. He explored his own choices. He eventually got tired of snakes. And one day in his early 20s, he announced to us, tomorrow I'm going to enter culinary school and become a restaurant chef. And he learned to make his own decisions. And he's now a chef at a good restaurant in Los Angeles. <laughs> So he, chose, he, he followed his own path. Exactly. Whereas our micromanaged kids are scheduled to play soccer at 3.30 and to do their homework and to do this and clean the dishes and all sorts of stuff. On the one hand, we want our children to be independent and mature. And on the other hand, we do everything possible to prevent them from being independent mm -hmm. and mature. So in most of the societies that you detail in this book and some that you have lived with, they share food, which also means that they share famines in, in some situations. They share beliefs, values, need for connection, but also a deep sense of personal responsibility in, in many ways, extreme vigilance against potential dangers. The survival of themselves and the tribe or the clan means everything. 
And this means that they've adapted what you call constructive paranoia. Can you tell us what that means? Yes, an example of constructive paranoia is that you and I met about 25 minutes ago. And during these 25 minutes, I can tell you that I have made no move to kill you. <laughs> and I've not detected on your part, though I may be inobservant, any move for you to kill me. In a traditional society, this would be impossible because strangers are rare, you are sedentary, you know the people around you, you know whether they're a threat or not, and therefore if you see a stranger, someone coming in from the outside, it probably means that they're coming there to scout out your territory for a war raid or to steal your pigs or your women. And therefore, when one encounters a stranger, realistically it's dangerous, one adopts the attitude that I call constructive paranoia. Paranoia for us is a pejorative. It means exaggerated fears. But in New Guinea circumstances, what seems to us exaggerated fears really is appropriate, given that it's going to catch up with you if you make a, make mm -hmm. a mistake. Mm -hmm. In fact, there are some things like innovations in the way that things are done are sort of discouraged. You were discouraged from skipping rocks across a pond or playing with fire, or was it calling out the names of cave bats while you're hunting for them. That's right. The anthropologist Jane Goodale, not to be confused with Jane Goodall, studying the Kowlong people of New Britain, she was the one who observed that she was told not to speak the name of a cave bat or not to skip a stone on the water or not to go over a certain bridge if you're a man following a woman because it's dangerous. And to us, we would say that's silly. But out there... If something bad happens and you don't know why it's happened and you're searching for an explanation, maybe it occurs to you that tree fell after I called out the name of the cave bat. Maybe the name of the cave bat had nothing to do with it, but I'm not taking any chances. That's an example of constructive paranoia, and it's something that I've incorporated in my own life, being ultra-careful about what I now know are the real dangers of life. Like taking a shower. Like taking a shower, <laughs> which I did today, and it's the most dangerous thing I did today. <laughs> well, um, there is this, there are those rules, there is the sharing, there is the this is how we behave in order to stay safe, in order to survive. And there are also some cases of individuals expected to really endure hardships. I think it was somebody who told you a story about the, is it the Siriono Indians, I think, in Bolivia? And also the Kung, who I guess if one were to say it properly, they say Kung, but I'm not going to do that every time. Um, their ideal is that women should give birth by themselves. Yeah. And uh, a particularly brutal story uh, regarding one woman trying to give birth. Yeah, in my book I retell the story observed by an American missionary linguist. This happened to be a Paraha woman giving birth and... She was out by herself on the sandbar, and she was crying in pain because she said, the baby isn't coming. And so the American missionary wanted to go to her and help her, but the other Paraha said, no, she can and should handle this herself. And she kept calling out, and the other Paraha said, no, you stay here. If anybody's going to do it, it's her parents. But she kept calling, and as the night went, nobody helped her. As the night went on, her calls got weaker. In the morning, she was dead. What we would consider an extreme example of the emphasis on self-reliance, that you deal with problems yourself. Mm -hmm. And the downside is that it sometimes means, in this case, a healthy young person dying, we would say unnecessarily. But the contrary result is that it produces adults who are self-reliant and take care of themselves and don't depend on other people and are accustomed to getting through life's difficult situations. You also make the point in the book that we at Western societies misestimate many of the risks that are real for us, that more of us are killed by uh, cars and alcohol and guns and cigarettes than the big things that we might worry about, like terrorist attacks or, or nuclear accidents. Mm -hmm. Got a question here from the audience. We in modern society strive for certainty and risk aversion. How does this attitude differ in traditional societies? In traditional societies, I would say people emphasize risk aversion. They don't emphasize certainty because they know that there isn't certainty. The difference is that while they look for risk aversion, they are clear about what really are the risks. And they've had to become clear because they don't have 
doctors and police and 911 ambulances to bail them out. Whereas we're not that cautious about making mistakes because we expect usually to be bailed out. The result is that the risks that we obsess about are events beyond our control that kill people spectacularly in large numbers, such as terrorists and plane crashes, which realistically kill vanishingly few Americans. And we tend to poo-poo the risks that are under our control, such as the risks of falling in the showers and cars and alcohol, because we believe, yes, that's the risk for the average person, but I'm much more careful. And the reality is that the average person encounters average risks. So we don't think clearly about risks and recognize what are the real dangers of our life. In fact, you make the point that something that you never experienced from the New Guinea Highlanders uh, that you lived with and never saw among the Kung and other small-scale societies was this idea to do something dangerous just to show one's courage. Yeah, the macho attitude that is common in the United States, particularly among young men, to advertise that you're taking a risk is something that I have not seen in New Guinea. And there's an episode that I recount in my book about a couple of Kung teenage boys going for a hunt with their father, and an antelope with really sharp horns got wounded, and the young boys ran up a tree. And the father then dispatched this dangerous, kicking, slashing antelope. And when they came back to camp and recounted the story, and someone asked the young boy, so what were you doing when the antelope began slashing? They said, we ran up a tree. There was none of this, oh, me big tough. And what did the father say? He said, of course they ran up a tree. They're young boys. They could have gotten hurt. So there's none of the, the macho attitude. The son of an American missionary linguist that I know an American boy who grew up in New Guinea and came back to the United States as a teenager and was shocked to see what American kids are like. The way he put it was that American boys who aren't macho don't do well in the United States. There's a question about how people learn this, how children learn it. Could you talk about the differences between pedagogy in traditional cultures versus Western cultures? Pedagogy in Western cultures, pedagogy literally means the, the science, the art of teaching. And yes, we have an art of teaching. We have specialized teachers who get hired and they teach in particular places called schools on particular days called weekdays, teaching particular subjects. Um, teaching is not something that is done by parents and by other members of the society. Whereas in traditional society, there isn't any specialized time and place for teaching. Instead, teaching is by observation and participation. All adults are teachers. And so the young people learn by hearing the stories of their parents about the hunts that their fathers were on and, and what the women did in visiting and working in, in gardens. They learn by participating. They learn by going into the gardens. And gradually, by the time they're 12 years old, they've learned about the 77 varieties of sweet potato and where you plant them, even though there was not a school lecture on the subject. So teaching is by participation and observation, and it's gradual rather than the formalized teaching that we have. You mentioned earlier the differences in systems of justice, that they have different goals. There's a story that you tell in the book about a New Guinea driver. He's driving a bus uh, for his company, Malo, and he hits a young boy named Billy. He accidentally struck and killed Billy as Billy jumped out of a minibus one day after school. It was not marked as a school bus. He was meeting his uncle. So what happened after this accident? What happens after the accident? Just picture it in the United States. So you have accidentally killed a boy, killed a kid, who is dotted out behind a car. What do you do? Obviously, the first thing that you do is you call your insurance agent, and you call your lawyer, and you report to the police, and you start preparing your defense. The last thing you do is go have a conversation with the father and mother of the dead boy and what happened in New Guinea, and the result, as any of you involved in traffic accidents in the United States know, particularly if someone has been killed, is that the accidental killer is plagued by guilt feelings for the rest of his or her life, and the parents of the child are you know, racked by misery for the rest of their lives, and anger at the 
driver who killed their kid. In contrast, in this situation in New Guinea, a friend of mine was the employer of the driver. And in New Guinea, five days after the accident, um, the work comrades and the employer of the driver who had killed the kid sat down for a meal with the father and mother and uncles and relatives of the dead boy. The father of the dead boy held up a picture of the boy, gave a talk in which he was crying and said, we'll miss our son. And my friend, the employer, had to give a speech, which he said was the worst, hardest speech that he'd given, because he was just crying so hard. And he was saying, yes, I'm giving you compensation and food, but this is rubbish compared to the value of a child. And I know this because I've got my own children. The result was a emotional catharsis on both sides and then going past it so that these people were not tied up for the rest of their lives with hatred on the one side and guilt on the other side. The American legal system that focuses on right and wrong doesn't care about emotional catharsis. The traditional legal system, because you've got to deal with those people for your whole life, is concerned with emotional catharsis and not with right and wrong. So what do we give up when we leave the system of justice to the state besides the option of revenge, which is, plays big in a lot of these traditional societies? When we enter a system of state government, we gain things and we lose other things. We gain the ability to encounter strangers and enjoy and learn from strangers. We gain the ability to live in a market economy. We lose the confidence in social relationships that comes with spending your life among the same people. We gain loneliness routinely. We lose the certainty of lifelong relationships with your friends. We gain a longer lifespan. We lose security in old age. Now, if you ask me, Jared, which you prefer? Obviously, I'm living in Los Angeles and I visit New Guinea. I'm not visiting in New Guinea and living in Los Angeles because I want to live to 90 and not to 40, and I like to go to the opera and I like to have libraries and I like to be in wonderful halls like this and meet interesting um, strangers. But I also love going to New Guinea and I've learned from it. Well, that is a question. A lot of people have moved from these traditional societies to state societies, urban centers, and they have given up the traditional ways. What are some of the things that draw them? What you, You've spoken to some of them about why. Oh, it's very clear why they moved to urban centers. An anecdote is that a, f- a friend of mine who was interested in encountering uncontacted, traditionally living people in New Guinea, went out to a group that he had heard had just been contacted, and yes, half of them were living in the jungle, and the other half of them were already living in an Indonesian village. And we asked why they had chosen to move into the village, they said, it's simple, we like rice and clothes and security. Mm -hmm. The reasons that New Guineans and other traditional people give for seeking out Western society is that they want medical care, they want school opportunities for their kids, they want security, from not being attacked. They want food security, being able to buy food and not being dependent on stores. Those are some of the reasons. But as you pointed out, one of the problems is that these people who are used to traditional diets and traditional ways move into modern societies and they put on weight, they get hypertension, diabetes, some of these you know, contemporary diseases or that a lot of Westerners have. What is it in their genetic system that makes that happen? Is it just habit or is it something that we as human beings are conditioned for? There are quite a few frequently cited cases of traditional peoples who acquired the modern diet suddenly and became spectacular examples of explosions of diabetes. One example is that there was a Jewish population in Yemen, in a poor rural area of Yemen, that had been living there for probably close to two millennia. And they were airlifted to Israel in an operation called, I think, something like Operation Red Magic Carpet. Mm-hmm. So they arrive in Israel from living under medieval Spartan conditions, and they immediately encounter the first world lifestyle where they're eating lots of food and they're sedentary and they're not exercising much. When they arrived in Israel, not a single case of diabetes. Ten years later, there's an explosion of diabetes. The other well-known case in the U.S. is the Pima Indians Mm -hmm. of Arizona um, who 
have one of the two or three highest frequencies of diabetes in the world, something like 50%, for reasons to connect it with the history that they had a particularly severe bout of selection for an efficient metabolism that will let you, let you store fat, and then when they encounter the supermarket, they balloon. Here's a question from the audience. Should modern society contact primitive isolated societies that have no previous contact or leave them alone? If so, how? Yeah. Good question. Should we moderns contact traditional societies that have had no contact? The first thing to be said about it is that, that we in the United States often have the impression that those traditional people out there would love to be left alone and that it's we bad Westerners who are going out there and dragging them into the modern world. The reality is that those remaining New Guineans and Amazonian Indians, often it's they who seek out contact with the modern world for a couple of reasons. One is they've seen steel axes, which are much better than stone axes. They've seen matches, which are better than fire drills. They've seen umbrellas, which if you're living in an area with 400 inches of rain per year, you bet that you would rather have an umbrella than banana leaves. So it's that traditional peoples have often seek out what Western society has to offer. And the other part of it is that those traditional peoples who don't seek out the steel axes and the medical care, sadly, are likely to get pushed out of the way or abused by other traditional people who have acquired Western technology. So it's not our choice. The exception is that in Brazil, where there are really quite a few uncontacted Indian groups, the Brazilian government agency concerned with traditional Amazonian Indians formerly had a policy of contacting them and now has a policy of not contacting them because the result they've observed so often is the introduction of flu and other diseases that kill half the tribe in the first couple of weeks. So the Brazilian Indian agency policy now is to leave them alone unless they take the initiative. Another headline I read about your book is, Jared Diamond says, religion is irrational. Your uh, explanation was a little bit more nuanced, but nonetheless, I mean, your books have been about reasons why societies fail and why they adapt certain practices in order to survive. So what role does religion serve in traditional societies? Rather than you thinking that Jared Diamond said that, that religion is irrational, I'd rather that you complained that Jared Diamond says that religion is hyper-rational. <laughs> That's to say, there, there are, I counted seven reasons. Why is it that every human society has religion? Let's step back from whether it's true or not. A visitor from outer space would say, never mind whether it's true. If all those human societies have religion, must be doing them some good. Otherwise, some society of atheists would have taken over the world. Why has religion arisen so widely? And I was able to count up at least seven ways in which religion benefits societies by providing explanations before there is science, by providing a rationale for obeying the chief and the king and the governor before there was modern law, by helping diffuse anxiety. For example, there was a study of a village in Israel that was near the Syrian border and was being bombarded by rockets. And realistically, there was absolutely nothing you could do about whether the rocket would hit your house. The risk was instead that you would get so freaked out with the rockets that you would do something stupid and kill yourself or get chronically angry and lose sleep. And it turned out that those Israelis who were religious and were chanting psalms were able to avoid anxiety and keep their cool under the rocket attacks better than Israelis who were not chanting psalms. So those are some examples of the, the objective benefits that religion brings us, whether it's true or not. A uh, question is, when can a society abandon religion? When can a society abandon religion? Um, wait 50 years, I'm serious, and let's see what happens. Because the reality is that in many societies, in many industrialized societies today, devotion to religion is decreasing. This is widespread throughout Europe. It's not true in the United States, raising the question, what's different between the US and Europe, that Europeans are gradually reducing their commitment to religion, while Americans are not. And there's some speculation in my book on that subject. But it's going to be interesting to see in 50 years. I think the situation of religion 50 years from now depends on the state of the world 50 years from now. Well, I know that one of the things is uh, hope also helps to diffuse anxiety. And we have a question here from the audience. Is there any way to break the juggernaut of our way of living 
thinking, the free market, the consumer and self-obsessed, to the community-minded based on the experience of native and traditional cultures? And a similar question from another audience member, is there any hope? Is there any hope? Yes, there is hope. I go back and forth whether our chances of achieving a world worth living in are 51% or 52%, or occasionally in my worst moments, 49%. But my wife and I had this debate when we were deciding whether to have children. We decided the chances are 51% that it'll turn out okay. Um, but the, I would describe and as... And you had twins, so you have two chances. I have chances. twins, yeah. So we, so we, we threw the dice and it came, came back twice. But the, the, the reality is that, yes, there are lots of threats to my kids having war worth living in when, in the year 2050, long after I'm gone. And the threats are frequently talked about. They're the standard threats of climate change, of toxic chemicals, of invasive species, of overfishing, of exhaustion of available water supplies, of destruction of topsoil. But every one of those threats, it's not an unstoppable asteroid hurtling at us from outer space. It's something that we do. And since we do it, we can choose not to do it. And for all these things, including global warming, we know perfectly well how to decrease the risk. The issue is just, do we have the political will? And that's particularly a question for all of you here under the age of, of 30 who are going to see the consequences of the decisions, including the bad decisions taken by your parents and grandparents. Anything else about modern society that you think is unequivocally better than living in a traditional society? Gosh, so many things that we've... We, again, I've I, I voted with my feet. Opera, orchestra, books, being able to travel, health, doctors, my children are twins, they would not have survived in a traditional society. Um, those are all the reasons why I'm, I'm glad to be here, but I'm glad to be able to, to go there every year and a half. And do you feel like there's anything in particular about traditional society life that you carry with you in your own life? Gosh, is there anything? Yes, there's so much. I would say that emotionally, I'm in the United States 95% of the time, and I'm emotionally in New Guinea 70% of my time. <laughs> Well, Jared Diamond, I want to thank you in just a moment, but first I want to give credit to all of the folks that helped make Writers on a New England Stage possible. Our executive producer and live stage presentation director is Patricia Lynch. The associate producer and communications director here is Margaret Talcott. New Hampshire Public Radio president is Betsy Gardella. Our NHPR live show producers tonight, Taylor Quimby and Sarah Plord. Live sound and recording engineer, Mike Marchand. Musical director and band, Bob Lord and Dreadnought. And photography tonight by David Murray at Clear Eye Photo. But now I would really love you to join me in thanking Professor Jared Diamond. Thank you.